This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of Farm Tank. Today I'm going to be talking with Barrett Ursek, who is a true American entrepreneur. Barrett hasn't let many things stop him in his life. He began working when he was just 12 years old. He started his own company in high school, dropped out of college just three weeks later because he found out his wife was pregnant. He then went to go on to uh, just start working really hard in life. He sold 50 jobs in his first company before he knew actually how to do the work. He then went on to sell his first company for $3.5 million in only his 20s. He sold his second company several years later for over $10 million. Now he owns a company called Holganics where he's just trying to make a difference in this world today and have an impact. Make sure to listen to all of Barrett's insights on starting companies, negotiation, selling the Caribbean, the best Philly cheesesteaks around Philadelphia, overcoming adversity, the importance of gratitude, and life-changing moments in his life. With that, I'd like to welcome Barrett to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to uh, talk about your first company that you started in high school. I actually did something very similar to that. I began working at 13, just mowing uh, local lawns in my neighborhood. Eventually turned 16 where I could drive and pick up more jobs. But it was time to come to school and I had to go down to Fayetteville. So I had to discontinue the lawn and landscape service. I actually uh, reconnected with a fraternity brother down there and he did the same thing in the northwest Arkansas area. We worked that up, and uh, I did that throughout my whole college. But I'm really wanting to know, what mo- what motivated you to start your own company in high school? Yeah, so good, great question. So, you know, you, you alluded in my intro that I, you know, my first job was telemarketing for True Green Lawn Care Company, and, and True Green and Chemlawn became the same company. So probably most of your listeners have heard of one or the other. It's a billion-dollar company that you know, puts down fertilizer and kills weeds for lawns across the country. And so I was a telemarketer there at age 12, and um, the only people that would hire me at age 12, and in fact, kind of funny story, um, they told me, when I went and applied for the job, they told me I had to have uh, working papers to work in Pennsylvania, and I was too young. Um, and so I went to my principal, who I used to go fishing with quite a bit, and told him I needed working papers. And he said, the only place you can work in Pennsylvania, this is back in the 80s, the only place you can work in Pennsylvania legally is on a farm, so we can get you agricultural working papers and go get a job at a farm somewhere, and, and you'll be good. I said, hey, man, I'm growing grass at True Green. It must be agricultural. Give me the working papers, and I'll see if they work. I showed up to True Green for a second interview, said, hey, I got the working papers. Where, when do I start? And uh, anyway, they didn't know the difference. And so they, they gave me my first shot at age 12. But that, that taught me, uh, by telemarketing um, at True Green, taught me about building a lawn care business, because that's basically what I did, is we did cold calls and scheduled appointments for people to measure lawns. And then eventually when I was 16, they let me be an on-the-road salesman where I went out and met people at their kitchen table and sold them lawn care. So, and, you know, we never, True Green never cut grass, planted trees, or spread mulch. They just put down fertilizer and killed weeds. And so, you know, that was what I knew. I worked at, I worked that job every day of my life from age 12 to, to you know, almost at the end of my 16th year. Um, and so, you know, it was five years of, of doing that almost. And um, so I got to know that side of the business. Barrett, I'm really wanting to know where things started to change for you growing up or you could say when that fire started to uh, spark for you. 
I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. Some of your some of your uh, listeners might might know about Tony Robbins, and I did this whole fire walking deal with him when I was sixteen. And and there you're supposed to set your goals and overcome your fears. And the other thing we learned about at the Tony Robbins seminar is that you become um, very much like the top five people you spend the most time with. So take the five people you spend the most time with, divide divide out their their successes and challenges, and that's more or less what you're going to become. And um, so anyway, I looked around at the people I was hanging out with, the True Green at the time, and there was a lot of people that uh, weren't leading the life that I wanted to lead. There was, I thought, man, that's not the life I want. So I need to separate myself from these people. So I literally just pulled over side of the road and called my boss and quit and decided to start my own lawn care company. Figured, hey, I sold a bunch of lawns. I could, I could figure out how to go fertilize them. Tell me this. I knew you knew how to uh, sell lawns growing up and everything. Seems like you did a lot of that. But when you went to start this company, did you actually know how to fertilize these lawns? Funny story, Jordan. I hadn't actually, I didn't know how to fertilize a lawn. I only ever sold lawns. And so, I mean, the first, I went out and sold 50 accounts, and then I had to figure out how to go do them. I went to Kmart and bought Scott's four-step and a plastic spreader that, you know, was not, was far from a commercial spreader. And I went out and started doing the lawns, and man, I striped them and burned them and killed them, and it wasn't very good. But, you know, through trial and error, I, I figured out how to do the job and actually met met an agronomist who took me under his wing and really showed me how to design a program and take care of the property and the soil and the plants. And, and so that, that was my gig in high school. Um, it was a part-time thing while I went to high school. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, it was going to be a part-time thing while I went to college. And uh, so, you know, I'm in college for my first three weeks. And I went to Penn State, and I went to our local branch campus so I could still run my, my business while I went to Penn State. And... Um, found out that uh, my high school sweetheart, who I had met in kindergarten, um, was pregnant. And I was the dad, and so I thought, well, I guess it's time to make this lawn care business a full-time mission because i got to support a family. And so that's, that led to the dropping out of college and, and making that my full-time gig. But that's why I started in high school, and that's, that's how it evolved. So you've told our listeners a little bit why you dropped out of college in the first place, but can you expand on this a little bit more for us? Why didn't you decide to finish out school and take the safe route with uh, getting a steady job, getting your diploma? Well, you know, I think it's a combination of things. Um, first of all, you know, I have a tendency to have a little bit of uh, ADD. And I can remember going into college the first day and being so excited that I was, you know, I had already started my business, but I didn't really feel like I knew business. And so my first class was microeconomics. And I thought, man, microeconomics, this is where I'm going to learn it all. And so I, I showed up to class, you know, 10 minutes early, got the front middle seat, had my new notebook out. I was ready to, you know, learn about running a business for real. And, uh, and this, this um, professor gets on, uh, gets in front of the classroom, and, and I can remember she drew the XY curve, standard supply and demand stuff that you learn about, you know, basic business 101. And I started asking her questions that I thought were relevant questions to my business, and she didn't seem to know any of the answers. She just knew what the textbook had to say. And so i I got to tell you, my first day of college, I had a, a a disheartened taste about at least learning practical things I needed for business. Not enough to drop out, but I, I will tell you that my first, my first kind of uh, taste of college was, was that it wasn't so practical, at least things I was learning at that point. And I'm not saying that for everybody in every profession. I'm just saying that was my experience that first day. Um, but then, you know, when I found out that uh, my girlfriend was pregnant, and by the way, when I found out she was pregnant, I was 18 years old, she was 17 years old. So, uh, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the most exciting news in the world. Um, but I can remember going and telling her dad that I, she was in the hospital, actually, and uh, the reason we knew she was pregnant is because she had a miscarriage. Um, but 
she had twins, and so one of them survived and one of them didn't. And the one that survived is Katie, who, who runs our marketing today at Holganics. And, um, and so she's in the hospital, and I've got to go tell her dad what's going on. And so I went and knocked on the door of her father and brought him out and told him, what, told him hey, you know, she's, she's pregnant, she's in the hospital, had a miscarriage, but the other one's okay. Um, and, um, you know, you could just see the shock on his face, and, you know, I thought maybe he was going to hit me, but he didn't. Um, and, um, you know, he said, uh, I said, look, I'm, I think I want you to know it's okay. I love your daughter. I met her in kindergarten. We've, we've known each other a long time, and I'm going to marry her, and we're going we're gonna to make a family, and it's going to be okay. And I can remember him looking at me and saying, you know, how do you expect to support my daughter? Uh, you know, you're, you're 19 years old. You, you got, you know, you, you don't make enough money to support a family. And I can remember looking at him in the eye and saying, look, I got this lawn care business, and I remembered exactly how many customers I had, and, and I knew I wasn't making enough money to support a family, but I figured at that point in my life I thought I needed to make $50,000 a year in my pocket to support a family. I don't know where I got that number, but that was my number. And I thought, and I, and I sat there right, right on his front yard and told him how many customers I needed to get by the end of the year in order to make $50,000 profit. And if I made $50,000, I thought I could support a family. And, I, you know, I can remember him looking at me with a little bit of disbelief and, like, maybe that was a crazy plan, um, which was one of the greatest things he could have ever done because it made sure that no matter what, I was going to hit that goal, and no matter what, I was going to be able to support my family. And um, so, frankly, I just didn't see a path of supporting a family and taking care of my, taking care of my new family while going to college or while getting a job, because any job I was going to get was going to be real entry level. And I thought as long as I ran my own business, I could control how much money I made. I just had to work harder, and, and I could always make more. And so I just... It just, it, I don't even think it was a serious decision. It was like, this is the only thing I can do. And, um, you know, I'm really fortunate that ha- that happened. Um, didn't feel fortunate at the time, but, you know, it gave me a head start on all my friends who, you know, then proceeded to go to four or five years of college and, you know, do a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, and I'm, and I'm sure some learning too. And they all got decent jobs after college, but by the time they had decent jobs, I already had a really decent business and had really kind of cut my teeth in the entrepreneur uh, space and, and um, kind of knew what it was like to be a businessman. Yeah, Barrett, my dad uh, tells me a similar story about himself. Before he had me, he was kind of jumping around from job to job. He actually worked with the Dallas Cowboys a little bit, but my mom got a big job at Eddie Bauer in Chicago on Michigan Avenue as a manager. So my dad ended up going there with her, and uh, he got a job at the Chicago Board of Trade. Actually, the first few months didn't go that well for him. He actually ended up owing the Board of Trade money because he wasn't producing. He wasn't, uh, it wasn't until he found out he was having me, though, when he really started making money and moving up the ladder until he eventually got a position, he was running the whole place. That's really neat. You know, my dad always told me, he said, uh, you're really good at doing what you have to do once you figure out what you really have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, something about having a new baby, uh, that's, you know, it, it, it changes all your priorities and changes everything, and all of a sudden you know exactly what you have to do, and you cut out everything else, and you make it work because you don't want to let that baby down. I think that's some really good advice, Barrett, and uh, a lot of good information. But one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about today was how you built these two companies up so quickly and sold them for millions. Yeah, so I'll tell you that you know the first company, um, it was really a, it was about fear and necessity. Um, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a sophisticated business person at the time. I'm not sure I had a great business plan. I knew how to sell lawn care 
I, I met an agronomist who taught me how to take care of the plants and build a good program from a fertility perspective. Um, I, I really learned the agronomy because I had to or I had nothing to sell. Um, but at the end of the day, I was just afraid that I was going to not make enough money to support my family. You know, then you get a mortgage, and then you're afraid you're not going to make enough money to pay your mortgage. And then you get, you know, I had one kid at, at 19. I had, a, I had two kids at 20. Um, you know, I had three kids by the time I'm 25, four kids by the time I was 28. So, you know, kids just kept on coming. It just added another layer of fear and another layer, layer of, uh, boy, i got to get to work. Um, so I would say that that was the beginning was just fear, and I just, I just knew I had to go work really, really hard to make sure that no matter what, my family was going to be okay. And that was the beginning. Um, I didn't even know you could sell a company. It wasn't even in my, you know, bandwidth of possibility. But, you know, by just working hard every day, I built a really nice business. Um, you know, it wasn't a giant business, but in our little local community, I, I, I was the brand in, in two counties around Philadelphia. There's seven counties around Philadelphia that you know, make up the suburban metropolitan. And the, there was two, two of the most affluent counties. I, I owned them. I mean, if you got your lawn fertilized and you got your weed sprayed, your chances are you got it done by us. And... Um, so Scotts, the people that make the Scotts four-step that you buy in the hardware store, they got into professional turf uh, applications in the 90s. And, and when they did, their strategy was to go and, and buy basically all the independents in, in the big cities and roll them up into, a, into one brand, and that was going to be their launch to compete with True Green Chemlon. And um, so they had bought a couple of my competitors around Philadelphia, and you know, they knocked on my door a couple times, said they wanted to buy my business, and I pretty much told them no because it, it's all I ever knew. I didn't really want to sell the business. It was my identity. It was kind of who I was. Like, I'd go to the gas station, and people would come up and talk to me about their lawn. You know, I was in my little local community. I was the guy. And so, you know, I, I didn't have your intent to sell it, and they just kept calling me and kept calling me and kept calling me. And, um, and I can remember, you know, the, the guy whose job was to get me to say yes you know, he said, look, everybody's got a price. Just name your price. We really want your business. If you name your price, you know, maybe you'll get it. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll say no. But you, what, do you got, what do you got to lose in naming your price? This is one of my first uh, lessons in negotiations, by the way, and I'll give you the punchline in a second. So I named my price, and I think I told him, you know, $10 million, which was outrageous. There's no way they're going to give me $10 million. But hey, if they give me $10 million, I'll sell the business. Well, he just changed the conversation. So I just kept saying no. No, I'm not interested in selling. No, I'm not interested in selling. No, I'm not interested in selling. To saying, well, what would you sell it for? Ten million dollars. Now, all of a sudden, I'm talking about selling the business, even though it's not a realistic number. I'm talking about selling the business. So then he says to me, he says, "Okay, well, what, I, let me go to work. Maybe I can get you something close to that." And I'm not sure we can, but we'd really like your business. It's really special. We 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 really want to buy it. So he he gives it a couple of days and calls me back. He says, "Hey, listen, I talked to I talked to the president of the company and." Um, I think we can get you real close to that $10 million. You know, I forget the real number. Let's say it was $9 million. And still, way more than he should have been paying me for it. And I'm like, $9 million? Like, really? He's like, yep. I'm like, all right, we'll put that in writing. Meantime, I go home. My wife and I, man, we, we're selling business for $9 million, and we're picking out the boat. We're, we're thinking about what our vacation is going to be. Like, now I've just mentally changed gears. I'm selling the business. So this is the second lesson in negotiation. He comes back with a $9 million deal, just like he said. But it had 20-year terms, 20-year payout terms with all kinds of, all kinds of um, performance clauses and everything else. I was never going to get the $9 million. But 
the point was he came back to me with a $9 million deal. So there's two things negotiable, what I learned at that, that day, price and terms. So if you name the price, you may not get to name the terms and vice versa. And so uh, he totally flipped it around by giving me my price, but, but doing it in a way that was his terms. Then it got me negotiating. These are ridiculous terms. I can't sell the business with, with a 20-year payout. He says, oh, okay, well, what kind of payout would be reasonable? So now all of a sudden, I thought it was a cash deal. Now all of a sudden I'm negotiating whether they're going to pay me out over three years or over five years. And, and obviously the price came way down, um, but they got me to the table. And at the end of the day, um, you know, to, to get more than $3 million from my business, um, I figured it was going to take me more than 10 years to make that much money. And I figured I could go into another town and rebuild that company in a year or two with what I knew and with some money in my pocket. And um, so I thought, they're just paying me too much for the business. I might as well sell it. So that's what I did. I sold that business. I think that's a lot of good insight on business buyouts you included for our listeners that many people may not know. But let, uh, let's talk about the second business a little bit that you built up and sold for even more than the first. Um, bought a boat, you know, just like, just like my wife and I planned, and, and took six months off and, and then started another company in, in, the next, in Baltimore, basically, because I had a non-compete for Philadelphia. And within seven months, I had a company bigger than the one I sold. Um, so, and I only spent a small piece of the money they gave me to do that. So, you know, it ended up being a pretty good decision. Thanks for answering those questions for me. I learned a lot um, about different aspects of business just from those answers. But uh, it seems like you're really a go-getter and have been your whole life. I think our listeners will really benefit understanding how you manage your time exactly. Every time I talk to Barrett, it seems like he's all over the place. He seems like he's really uh, tied into his family, though. So tell us how you manage your time with all the work and travel you do. Yeah. So I would say that, um, you know, people try to tell you about time management and balancing your time equally. Um, that's not my strategy. It might be a great strategy, but it's not mine. I tend to do, um, I tend to binge on, on activities um, for periods of time. I always tell my wife, you know, and look, I'm, I'm not perfect. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a, probably a propensity to be a workaholic. I love my family, and I, and I purposely carve out time for my family. Um, but I have to be disciplined about that. If I'm not, you know, I have a tendency to, you know, just work and work and work. And so what I end up doing is I work in, in, in spurts. Um, and I tell my wife it's a temporary imbalance. And so, you know, I may work 80, 80 hours a week for nine weeks because it's the most important nine weeks I've got to get something done. And, and I'll just tell my wife, look, for the next nine weeks, it's, it's a temporary imbalance. I, I'm not going to be home every day for dinner. But at the end of those nine weeks, we have an agreement that says that, you know, we're going to start to spend some more focused family time. And then I do the same thing where I'll take, you know, I'll, I'll work three days a week at times of the year that it's not so critical. Um, I take a lot of, uh, certainly I take a lot of four-day weekends, um, you know, where I'll take a Friday and a Monday and, and, and two days at times where it's not so critical. And so then I'm not just home, you know, for two hours at nighttime, you know, where I, you know, eat dinner, watch, watch the news, talk to the kids, but I'm there for four days and we can do fun, you know, really focused things. So to me, I like to focus on an activity. I focus on work and then I block everything else out. And don't get me wrong, I still talk to the family. I still try to get home for dinner. But I make, you know, I make those times about work, and then, and then I'll catch my breath, and I'll, and I'll spend a couple of months where I'll just focus on the family, still do work, but, but I make it a, a secondary priority for sure. So I would take eight weeks off every single winter, um, and we'd go down to the Caribbean. And so you know, I just thought that was a wonderful thing. But it also meant I had to work 80 hours a week come spring. 
and that was okay with me. Um, so so it, it really gave me the ability to focus my time on the activity. I think there's a lot of wasted time in changing activities. So let's just say I work eight hours and then I got to go home and then try to be with the kids for four hours and then I got to, you know, try to do my personal stuff for, for a couple hours or whatever. If I can just block that time where I'm just focused, even if it's for a couple of days in a row, focus on family, a couple of days in a row, focus on business, a couple of days in a row, focus on, on myself, you know, working out or whatever or doing a hobby, um, that, that works out well for me. Um, that being said, you know, I like to say, uh, you know, one of my favorite, uh, I had to do a speech for my, uh, for my daughter when she got married, and, and you know, kind of one of the things I said is, uh, you know, true love is, and this is really comes from the way my wife and I uh, see our marriage and the way we see raising kids, but it's, uh, you know, true love does not come from, you know, looking into each other's eyes with butterflies in your stomach, as you might hear on a fairy tale, but true love comes from looking off into their eyes and at a common vision and working hard towards it together. May you both always have a common vision and grow while working hard towards it together. So my wife and I always had that common vision of, hey, if I'm going to be working my butt off, there's a reason for it. You know, there's a payoff for the family, and, and, there's, a, and there's that time that we're going to spend together. And so to having a supportive wife um, has been really key in that, and it's allowed me to have um, an, in, a series of un, unbalanced uh, time slots that turn out to be a balanced life. Yeah, that's definitely a different outlook on time management, I would say, Barrett. But uh, one thing I'd like to add is most people, wives or girlfriends, don't really tend to have that mindset, so I think you're on the lucky side there. But uh, moving on from this, I like to uh, take a step back in my podcast from people's work lives and really get to know who they are as a person outside of work. So it really seems like you're into your family and you love them very much and you do a lot with them. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? I've got to know you and Katie through uh, working with you guys, but tell me about everyone else. Yeah, so I do love my family very much. It's um, most thing that's most precious to me is love of my wife and my family. Um, and so um, I've, got, I've got my wife who, again, I met in kindergarten. We've been married now for, I think, uh, 27 years. And um, so she's uh, 45 years old. We got married when we were just kids, and you know, we we grew up together. We we supported each other and and helped each other find herself, find each other, and find ourselves. And um, she's a she's a great woman. Um, she's always been a great woman behind me and my successes. You know, in in the early days, she ran our books and and she did our um, all of our accounting and and kept me organized and kept you know kept the bills coming and going. And um, and then when she started having more and more kids, um, she started focusing on the kids as a full time full time career. And uh, she really focused on the kids as a full-time career, um, so much so that, um, you know, every, every year, again, we used to take eight weeks off, sometimes more, and we'd go to the Caribbean, um, and we're from Philadelphia. So in the middle of the wintertime, going to Caribbean doesn't really make sense for public school. So we'd usually enroll our kids, most years, we'd enroll our kids into public school, and then um, somewhere around Christmas, we would actually uh, withdraw them from school. And we'd enroll them into a homeschool program that we ran, or that she ran, frankly. Um, I maybe participated a little bit, but it was really her, her deal. And then she would homeschool the kids, sometimes for six, seven, eight weeks. Sometimes she'd homeschool them for the rest of the year. Every year was different, just depends on what was happening. And some years she'd come back and maybe re-enroll them into school for the last marking period. Um, sometimes she'd finish it, you know, with the kids. And so that was kind of neat because um, allowed us to spend a lot of time with the kids, but still allowed them to be in public school and get, you know, get the kind of socialization from that and, um, and allow us to control their curriculum to some degree um, and really get to know them. Um, but it's, it really shows you kind of the, the unconventional thinking of my wife to be able to 
do that, execute that, and think that's reasonable. Um, and, um, you know, I'm really grateful for her for dedicating her life to our kids, and, and we've got such great kids. Katie is my oldest. Uh, she's the one that came along and convinced my wife and I to get married, you know, when we were just kids. And uh, Katie has a degree from Drexel in entrepreneurship and marketing, and she runs our marketing at Holganics today. And so it's really great that I get to work with my daughter every day. Can't can't think of something better to do. I'm sure uh, Kevin and you uh, experience a similar uh, similar bond that you know being able to work together. Um, and then my other daughter Leah, she's a she uh, got a degree to be an early elementary school teacher, and she helps uh, special needs kids um, with early education at home. Um, so she she works uh, in people's houses to basically help them get uh, special needs kids ready for school, and teach them how to teach their kids at home with special needs. She just, uh, by the way, she just um, I don't know if, if you know this, Jordan, but um, she just had a baby about six weeks ago. So I'm actually a grandfather now, which is pretty crazy. I'm 46 years old. I'm a grandfather, um, and so uh, so that's kind of cool. I actually uh, did not know that about you, Barrett. Um, I don't think you've shared that information with me. But uh, you could tell my mom all about your new uh, grandbaby. She asks me every day when she's going to have grandbabies. I'm sure she'd be happy to babysit at any time for you. But uh, I also know you have two sons as well. Can you talk about them a bit? I know you've told me about Tucker some and how he's a great fisherman. Uh, so Tucker's 19 years old, and Tucker's a professional fisherman, which is pretty crazy in and of itself. You know, when your son tells you he wants to be a professional fisherman, I have to tell you, I, uh, you know, tried to convince him to start a business around fishing. I tried to convince him to go to college first and then, and then be a professional fisherman. But every time I tried to convince him of something else, he said, no, man, I just want to fish, Dad. And um, he convinced me. Every year I would have the kids watch a TED Talk and do a, a report on, the, on, a, on a TED Talk that they liked for part of our homeschooling thing. And um, so he did a TED Talk on a guy who made a million dollars a year with a hula hoop, and the whole thi- the whole theme, and he did it by having a like a like a, a uh, like a Broadway style review show in, in Las Vegas, you know, with a, with a bunch of hula hoops and you know crazy stuff. And so the whole theme of the uh, TED Talk was, you can make a million dollars a year doing anything, even a, even being a hula hooper, if you're willing to be the best in the world at it. And so my son said, "Look, Dad, I'm going to be a fisherman, and I'm going to be the best in the world." And you don't have to worry about me making money as a fisherman. I'm going to be okay. And um, so, we, you know, what are we going to do? We let him go off to be a professional fisherman. And I guess that's what we get for spending our, our winters down in the Caribbean every year because that's where he learned it. And so today he lives down in the Keys, the Florida Keys, and he fishes every day for a living. And, uh, and he's making a ton of money, and he's winning tournaments. And I couldn't be proud, more proud of him. And um, it's so neat to watch him live his passion and, and have the courage to do what he wants, even though it's totally unconventional. And the amount of money he's making is far exceeds the amount of money he'd be making um, had he gone to college and graduated college and, and his first couple of years working. Um, so it's neat to see him do that, and, and he's, still, he's still learning. Um, and so that's kind of cool and unconventional. And then I've got my youngest son, uh, Reef. And so Reef is... Um, 14 years old, and, you know, he's a handful. Uh, he's a total firecracker, and, um, uh, you know, we just we, we review core values with our kids and what they believe their core values are. And I just did this exercise with Reef. It tells you a lot about Reef. And his core values are winning, um, family, and leadership. And so that, that tells you a lot about Reef. I'm not sure what he's going to do with his life, but whatever he does, uh, I think he's going to run the show. So I think he might be the real entrepreneur in the bunch. Uh, but we'll, you know, time will tell. We'll support him, whatever he wants to do. And um, so that's that's my wife and kid. And then my granddaughter is Tessa James, who just came along six weeks ago. And boy, that was a magical thing. 
Sounds like you got a really good bunch, Barrett, and they're really following in your footsteps. You've mentioned your place in the Caribbean some in this podcast. You've also invited my father and myself down to come down, visit, do some fishing with you. Can you tell our listeners why you purchased this place as your second home? Yeah, so I'll tell you, you know, my wife, um, one of the things I, I neglected to mention about my wife is uh, that she's a licensed captain, and she grew up her summers with her grandfather on a boat in the Caribbean somewhere every summer. And so she'd get out of school and she'd meet her grandfather wherever he was with his boat, and um, they'd float around the Bahamas, the Virgin Islands, you know, you name it. And so she just has the biggest adventures and fun stories about her as a kid with her grandfather on this boat. And that's her favorite place in the world is the Caribbean. So, you know, happy wife, happy life. So, um, you know, as soon as we, you know, were able to, frankly, when we, we sold our first company, um, for, we talked about what do you want to do. We bought a boat, which I had already mentioned. And the idea was buy this boat and go, go cruise around the Caribbean just like her grandfather did. And we did that a little bit. Um, and we found a place in, in Key Largo um, that was just, it was just right for us. Um, it's in northern Key Largo. It's a kind of a private community surrounded by uh, 15 miles in every direction by um, state parks. And so it's just a really special place. It's got the coral reef right out front. Um, you can be deep sea fishing in, in seven miles for sailfish and, and marlin and tuna. You can be fishing in the patches in the, in the coral reef for you know, snapper and grouper. And you can fish in the back in the Florida Bay in the Everglades, which is, which is real accessible by boat um, for, for tarpon and redfish and, and, and everything back there. And so it's just a man, it's just from a fishing and from a water perspective, it was such a great place. My wife loves to go to the Bahamas, so it's a great launching place to go to the Bahamas. We can, we can be in Bimini in you know, two and a half hours on a fast boat. Um, and so, you know, it was just a, a great place for us to raise a family. It was just like a small town where everybody knew each other and, you know, the kids could, could ride around on their bikes and you didn't have to worry about them. And, and uh, you know, at age 12, you know, my kids are in boats exploring the Everglades and, you know, things that you just don't get to do in the big cities, you know, around Philadelphia and all. Um, Probably when, when I'm done working, the keys will be home. Yeah, me and my dad will definitely have to get down there, and you guys can uh, show us how to do some real fishing. Love to get you down there, get you on some sailfish, get you on some big mahi, some marlin. Be be my pleasure, man. I'd show you a little bit of our, of our way of life down there. It's so much fun. So moving off topic from everything, uh, I wanted to ask you in our podcast, what's the best Philly cheesesteak you've ever had? I know you're from the Philly area, and I know they're known for some of the best Philly cheesesteaks around. But uh, I'm just wanting to know your opinion on everything. It doesn't have to be a Philly cheesesteak from Philly. Well, so that's a, that's a multifaceted answer because there's so many options. You know, you've got the classic Pats and Genos. So that's what everybody sees on TV when they do the NFL and all. They're always showing Pats and Genos, and they're across the street from each other in South Philly. If I had to pick Pats or Genos, I'd pick Pats. Um, they just seem to have a, a little better meat to me. But, I, you know, that's personal preference. They're both great sandwiches. Um, that being said, um, the best cheesesteak I've ever had is at a restaurant in Philadelphia called Barclay Prime, and they have a $100 cheesesteak made with um, Kobe beef and all exotic everything. And I'm, it, it is not worth $100, and I would, I've only ever bought it once. However, it's pretty doggone good. And so if you want to talk about the best cheesesteak, it's Barclay Prime $100 cheesesteak. Um, but the one that everybody knows about, Pat's Geno's, I'd pick Pat's. Yeah, I, uh, there's this place in Kansas City, actually, I like going to. It's called uh, Jersey Boys. It's just a little sandwich shop. And they, oh, sure. They put uh, cream cheese in their Philly cheesesteaks. You ever had anything like that? Never had cream cheese. Out here we do Whiz, you know, which isn't cream cheese. It's basically 
processed cheese, but it's cheese whiz, but they call it whiz. But that's what a real Philly cheesesteak is. I've heard of the classic Pats and Genos you were talking about, but I've actually never heard of this $100 Kobe beef cheesesteak you were talking about. I'm definitely going to have to come up and get me one of those. Love to show you around and, and, and take you out to buy one. I would love to come up and get one sometime with you. But uh, I was doing some background research on you, and I was watching this video that you were doing, similar to a TED Talk. Do you think you could tell our listeners a little bit about the experience you have with Brother David? Yeah. It's a really interesting story. Um, you know, Brother David is a uh, Catholic Benedictine monk. And, um, and so before I tell the story, I want to preface it with I'm not trying to promote or debate anybody's religious beliefs. I'm just uh, giving you my experience with a religious man and, and how it affected me. Um, so this is not about uh, religion necessarily, although people could take it that way. Um, so Brother David is a Benedictine monk, and um, he, was, he came to a business conference to talk to us about business with the idea of having this idea of gratitude as a core value in business. And if businesses could operate from the sense of core value, that businesses would be more resilient to challenge and adversity, but also businesses would, would make the world a better place because yeah, everybody works for business, buys some businesses, and he has this idea of gratitude as this kind, kind of uh, consciousness, evolution of consciousness comes from uh, being in a, a state of gratitude and being grateful for things. And so he talked to us about that. It was very interesting. Um, you know, it hadn't exactly changed my life, um, you know, when I had, you know, but it was kind of an interesting concept. Now, keep in mind, Brother David, when he told us this story, he was in his uh, later 80s, and Brother David was in Austria during World War II when the Nazis invaded, and he talked about the Nazis invading his town and, you know, how there's no, there no windows, there was no heat, it was dark, it was cold, it was Austria, Nazis everywhere, and death and destruction, and he was forced to serve in the Nazi army as a, as a teenager, and he, and he said that um, during that time of his life, what saved him and allowed him to survive um, was to, he looked for something to be grateful for every single day. Sometimes it was a bloom of a flower, could have been a hug from a friend, song from a bird. But even when there's no heat, no windows, and there's Nazis in your town, and you're forced to serve in the army, he still looked for something to be grateful for every day, which is just, to me, remarkable. You know, no matter what's going on in my life, no matter how difficult it is, gosh, it just can't be as bad as what he had to deal with. Um, and so, you know, he talked about that idea of gratitude saving his life, and he talked about, he became a monk, and, and um, he dedicated like 20 years of his monk studies to this idea of gratitude as a necessary part of spiritual evolution. And he went and lived with um, Buddha, leaders in the Buddhist faith and the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith um, and the Hindu faith, and obviously he's Catholic, so he spent plenty of time with, the, with, with that faith. And he found this idea of gratitude in all the religions, and he talked about how each religion had spiritual evolution surrounded by gratitude at some level, and, and he wrote a, like a theological thesis on this. And so he kind of shared that with us, and again, it was interesting, but didn't change my life. But what did change my life was um, he, he hung out at the conference. It was a three-day conference, and he hung out for the three days and, and learned with the rest of us, and I got to sit next to Brother David. And, you know, I talked to Brother David, and I, I asked him what I thought was probably a cocky, smart-ass question, and um, wasn't expecting the answer I got. I said to Brother David, I said, Brother David, you went and lived with all these great religious leaders, the, you know, the, the Hindus and the, and the Muslims and the Buddhists and the, and the Jewish faiths, and you're Catholic. I said, you know, I, I went to church with my mom, and it was Catholic church, and, you know, they have a very specific process to get to heaven. I went to church with my wife, and she was Baptist, and, and boy, they, they got a really specific process to get to heaven. I said, Brother David, who's got the right process to get to heaven? I mean, you know, I'd, I'd like to go to heaven. Not right now, but at some point I'd like to. 
and uh, you lived with all the great religious leaders, so you must have the program, you must have the inside track. And, you know, kind of a smart-ass question, thinking I'm going to get the sales pitch on Catholicism, because if, what is he if, he if he's not a salesman for Catholicism, right? I mean, that's what he's dedicated his life to. But that's not what he did. Brother David stood back and put his hands into a diamond, and he said, um, heaven is available to the Muslim and the Jew. Heaven is even available to the atheist. He goes on to say, the atheist doesn't find heaven, often does not find heaven, because the atheist is full of conflict. The atheist is full of pushing away. He goes on to say, religions are belief systems that are necessary for people to find faith. But faith, faith is trust in life. Trust that everything life brings you is a gift, even when it seems like it's a pile of crap. And he laughs. And he goes on to say, uh, if you can trust that everything life brings you is a gift, even days that appear to be full of darkness and challenge, if you can trust that even those days are gifts, then you remove stress and anxiety and conflict from your heart and you replace it with peace, creativity, and opportunity. He goes on to say, if you can trust that everything life brings you as a gift, even those days that are full of darkness and despair, then maybe you can have heaven on earth because what is heaven if not peace, creativity, and opportunity in your heart? He goes on to say, if you can trust that everything life brings you as a gift, then you will trust that even death is a gift because after all, what does life bring everybody if not death? And then he says... If you can trust that even death is a gift, then surely you will go to heaven. And I don't know what happened. I wasn't looking for that answer. I wasn't looking for this guy to come in and touch my soul. But something happened, and all the challenges that I was dealing with, and I had some you know, significant personal challenges, some significant business challenges like everybody has. Um, and at that moment, I just decided that all these things are gifts, and it's okay. And um, not only is it okay, but I'm going to be grateful for these challenges. And if I am... Maybe they'll show up as opportunities on the other side. And so I went home with a different attitude and, and was able to deal with my, my challenges in a, a much more productive way. Had a lot less anxiety and stress. Got angry less. Um, but it took discipline to stay, you know, kind of focused on gratitude. I can really tell gratitude means something to you and really has touched home for you. And I've also noticed that you sign all your emails with gratitude before your signature. Could you tell us how you use gratitude in your business today? Um, we made it a core value within our company, so we, we always start every meeting off with what are you grateful for, personal and business, so all of our staff meetings. It's a great way to get to know each other. It's a great way to kind of focus on gratitude. When we have big challenges, you know, we kind of look and say, hey, we're grateful for this challenge. Somewhere, some way, this is going to create an opportunity. We're not sure where. We're not sure when. But when we look at the challenge with that framework, we always find the opportunity on the other side. It doesn't always happen in a week. Sometimes it might take us a year to find the opportunity, but we, well, we maintain that faith. And by the way, later on, Brother David did tell me that when he said, trust in life, trust everything life brings you as a gift, he said his version of life is God. You know, his word for life and God are, are you know, interchangeable. So he was saying that everything God gives me is a gift. Um, but he didn't use the word God because he was afraid that was going to maybe challenge me a little bit if, based on my relationship with that word. It wouldn't have. But uh, I just want to give your readers a little more background on Brother David and his, his idea around life and God. But... And again, it's not about other people's religious beliefs that may or may not be aligned with everything he just said. But what I can tell you is, if you have a challenging time in your life, if you can just look at it and just trust that it's a gift, and, and not know why and not know how, but just trust that it someday it will reveal itself as a gift, then what you will find is opportunities on the other side of that challenge. If you look at that challenge and say, why me, and you, and you cuss and moan about it and complain about it, then what you're going to find on the other side of it is obstacles, challenge, anxiety, stress, um, 
ultimately will lead to health issues. And so I really do believe that if we can have an attitude of gratitude, that we can create a lot more opportunity with our, with our lives and for other people, and, and we can be a lot more resilient because we look at challenges as opportunities, and we can be better leaders and better, better parents and better spouses. And so it's, it's become a core tenant in, in how I run my business and how we operate as a family. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of great information, I would say. Definitely gave me a different outlook on some things in life and in business itself. Continuing talking about gratitude, I know you're a true believer in adversity. Can you tell our listeners why that's such a key value to you? Yeah, well, you know, it, it really goes back to that uh, gratitude statement. Um, you know, be grateful for everything life brings you, even if it seems like it's a pile of crap. Um, you know, if you, if you really think about it, uh, first of all, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, that's my profession. That's my occupation. Um, what do entrepreneurs do? Um, you know, the way I define an entrepreneur is somebody who takes responsibility for solving problems and adding value to the world by, by solving problems in a way that nobody's ever solved before. That's real entrepreneurship. And so if you think about a problem, what is a problem if not an obstacle, if not a challenge? And so the very fuel for entrepreneurship is, comes from challenges, comes from bottlenecks, comes from obstacles. And so we should look at those challenges and obstacles as, as opportunities because if we didn't have any challenges or obstacles, what, what business would an entrepreneur have? I mean, he's a problem solver. He or she is a problem solver. And so adversity is, is fuel for entrepreneurship. Um, it's fuel for creating our products and services that are hopefully adding value to the world um, by solving problems. But beyond that, um, you know, we, we grow as individuals uh, by overcoming our greatest challenges. And, you know, it's great to put our feet up and watch TV and, and relax, but if that's all we ever do, you know, we're not going to be very happy. Um, you know, where I've been the happiest is when I faced big problems, big challenges, and, and overcome them. You're not always happy when you're in the middle of it, um, but, you know, if you, if you persevere and have resiliency and, um, and your creativity then you get the other side of that, and that's where you get your growth. Um, I did an exercise called a lifeline where you actually plot out your, you know, my life from age zero to age 46, let's say, and you plot out your highs and your lows, you know. And, you know, if, if you think about my lifeline a little bit that you know about me, one of my biggest lows in the early part of my life would have been the day I found out that my high school sweetheart got pregnant. I mean, that was a real low point. I wasn't excited and jumping up and down. I had to go tell her dad. And he, like, I'm like, this guy's, what, how's he going to take this? And I got, now I've got to get married and, and support a family. I'm not ready to do that. But if you think about the greatest gift in my life was that little girl that came and started this family. And so that was one of the greatest early adversities in my life and it led to one of the greatest gifts. That's just a simple example. But um, from, I can go through time and time again where the biggest challenges in my life have always shown up as, as my biggest growth opportunities. And so when I look at that lifeline, my, my lowest lows are always followed by my highest highs, and, and usually in about two to three years. So when I'm going through some real tough times, one of the things I do is I reflect on Brother David, hey, let's be grateful for this, even if it seems like it's a pile of crap, and just trust that it's okay and it's a gift. And the other thing I say to myself, hey, every other problem I've had to overcome within two or three years are followed by these great successes. So this adversity must be a leading indicator that tells me that I've got a great success coming around the corner in the next two or three years. So, hey, maybe I can get excited about that. And obviously, you know, you've got to work through your adversities. You can't just sit there and, and let them, you know, kick you in the teeth and knock you down or, or you don't get those gifts on the other side. I totally agree with you, and I hear the uh, same advice from my dad every day. 
But I know you've told us the adversity you had to overcome when you and your wife had a child at such a young age. But could you talk about the adversity you had to overcome when you had your second company in the building burnt to the ground, which eventually led to the opportunity for you to start Organics? Believe it or not, this is three months after I met Brother David. Um, so I had this whole gratitude for adversity you know, idea in hand. And um, we were building a new conference room in our warehouse. And at the same time, it was, uh, we, had seen a, we were seeing a price spike in fertilizer like we see you know, in, a, in certain years. You'll see the fertilizer run up. And um, so what we used to do to hedge our fertilizer costs when we would see that is we'd, we'd buy a bunch of fertilizer at springtime pricing so we didn't pay the higher price that, that we could see on the horizon. And we had done that this year. In fact, I bought more fertilizer than I'd ever bought in my life. We typically kept fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 worth of fertilizer on hand. Well, I bought like $500,000 worth of fertilizer um, at the low pricing, uh, trying to beat the price escalation I saw coming down the pike. We stacked it into our warehouse and our barn to the ceiling like we'd never done before. Um, and then we were building a conference room in, in the front of our warehouse. And our contractor, who was a you know, well-intentioned good guy, um, you know, he was going to get a bonus if it got done by Friday. And uh, here it was Friday, and so he was drying spackle with a propane-fired heat gun. And um, the process uh, started a fire behind the wall, and, uh, which then ended up burning the building to the ground. Um, and if you can just visualize this, Jordan, um, black smoke coming up, just full of toxic chemicals. Um, EPA's on site. They've diked my parking lot. Uh, with, uh, like, the equivalent of sandbags. It was not exactly sandbags, but just, just picture sandbags all around my parking lot up four feet tall so they could gather all the water so the water didn't run off into the, into the uh, habitat. I had to pay to dispose of that water um, as hazardous waste. It was $140,000 just to dispose of the water that they were diking in my parking lot. But this black smoke's coming up. All my trucks are lined up with these big logos on them, and all the big news companies from the three major channels were over top of my building with uh, news helicopters taking video of the whole thing. We're on all the major news networks that day. All my trucks lined up. You know, we got a lot of publicity that day. It was not necessarily the right kind of publicity, but, but we got some publicity. And um, my dad comes up, and he lived down the street, so he saw the fire, figured out what was happening. He ran up, and he put his arm around me, and he was crying. He said, oh, I'm so sorry this had to happen to you today, son. I said, oh, Dad, it's Okay. And he kind of stuttered, stand back. He said, it's okay. I said, yeah. I said, this is a gift. I said, I don't know why. I don't know how. But somewhere, someday, this will show up as a gift. And, um, you know, I just learned a thing from Brother David. So I just thought, well, what else can I do? And so my dad took a picture of me with the fire burning. And, and uh, he says, well, we'll remember this picture when you figure out what the gift is. And you can re- re- reflect on what that is. The cool thing is, the next day, by the way, nobody got hurt in the building. I'm not sure I could have said that had we had, you know, a real problem with somebody dying or something. Everybody got out of the building, and it was just, you know, it was uninsured. So we had a, a true $650,000 loss. Um, and so the next day I get my team into a, into a room, and I'm like, look, we've got to go out and, and put down fertilizer or something um, because if we're not going to generate invoices, we're going to run out of business. By the way, we have no fertilizer. And the supply house won't sell us any new fertilizer because we bought most of that on credit, and they're pretty sure we're going out of business. And so we got two options. One is we can go out and spray water and just tell people it's a nutrient. I mean, after all, plants need water. Maybe, maybe we can get away with that. Didn't feel good about that answer, but that was an option. The other option was, hey, we got this microbial stuff that seems to be working, but, boy, it's cumbersome to use. But that guy's willing to work with us because he wants to get this stuff out there, and we're his biggest customer. 
and um, we can get that stuff on credit. So what do you guys want to do? And it was unanimous. We all said, let's go for the microbial stuff. Let's, let's just jump in. So we took all 100 trucks, and we started spraying this microbial concoction that was real hard to use. And, um, but we got through, we were able to get through, jump through a lot of the hurdles and solve the problems around, around its use. And frankly, grew the company because we were base safe lawn care. We were using this microbial stuff. We had better results agronomically in the field. And, and it became a real competitive advantage to us. And I went to a mentor of mine. Um, who had built a billion-dollar company, and I said, hey, listen, I'm going to take this microbial stuff, and I'm going to take my lawn care business, and we're going to take it across the country, and we're going we're to revolutionize the lawn care industry and, uh, by going microbial and reducing inputs and all that. And he looked at me, and he says, every time you come with a problem, it's about managing guys and trucks. He said, this business, this product, isn't really ready for prime time. You're going to need to spend some time and money developing this product. If you really think this product is the big thing, don't go build a bunch of guys and trucks across the country. There's already good people that know how to manage guys and trucks in every city in the country. I, I recommend you sell your business, get out of the guy, in, the, 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 in his words, the dirty guy, dirty truck business, and go focus on the product and make the product ready for prime time and then go find people who can use that. And that's where you'll add the most value and that's where you'll make the most money and have the biggest impact. So I took his advice, sold my company to Chemlon. That's why I sold the second company. Um, and then used that money basically to, to start Holganics, bought the IP from the inventor, made him our VP of R&D, and, um, and brought in two more PhDs to basically help us you know, perfect the product, uh, perfect the formulation, make it shelf-stable. We made it more than 10 times more concentrated um, and uh, made it more consistent and started becoming different variations of it for different, different plants. And so you know, we were off to the races. And so here's the real lesson in this, Jordan. I never would have gotten to Holganics, which I think is my biggest opportunity to have an impact in this, on this planet with my profession, um, had I not had that fire. I never would have gotten to Holganics had I not had the fire and also had the attitude of gratitude to find opportunity on the other side of challenge. I think that's a great story, and I think we can learn a lot from that and use that in many things we do in life, not just business or the business we're running today. So thanks for sharing that with us. But uh, I want to take this time to jump back into your career now, uh, what you're doing now in life with work. So could you tell us a little bit about Holganics? Yeah. So Holganics is uh, really exciting. I mean, to be honest with you, this is the most exciting thing I've ever worked on. Um, you know, my first business, you know, was you know, spraying lawns and killing weeds. And I used to joke around, you know, at like cocktail parties and whatever. I mean, I had a nice business and I, was, and I had a nice lifestyle and, you know, I'd taken care of family and paid a mortgage. But you know, I used to say, hey, what are they going to put on my tombstone? You know, thank God Barrett's here. There's less dandelions in the world, and, and you know, people's lawns are a little greener. You know, it, it, it didn't seem significant. I mean, it was significant because I provided jobs for people and I supported a family. But my career, you know, was I making the world a better place? Was I not making the world a better place? You know, it was kind of arguable. Um, and so it always seemed a little bit like, hmm, I wonder if this is what I'm really supposed to be doing with my life. And... The cool thing about Holganics is um, we, we found a product that um, creates much more functional soil by building, uh, using, using microorganisms. So we use healthy microbes, uh, beneficial bacteria, beneficial fungi, um, in the right, in the right uh, consortium, the right kind of ratios of, of bacteria and fungi to um, add back to the soil. And our whole philosophy is, is if we get uh, the soil teeming at a microbiological level with the right healthy microbes, that that soil will do a lot to take care of itself. 
Not everything. You still need fertilizers and sometimes pesticides, but you need a lot less of those things. And you get better performing plants um, that just work better in every which way. They, 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 they uh, withstand stress better, drought, heat, that type of thing. Um, we get healthier plants that look better. We get better yield. Um, but it's all at focusing on soil health at a, a microbial level, getting really focused on what's the right consortium of microbes to make the most functional soil that we can, that we can and then supplement with, with fertilizers and pesticides and whatever else we need to do to, to take care of those plants. And, you know, a lot of ways it's a, it's a, it's a really new, sexy idea. I think, you know, microbes and, and their role in plant health, as well as using microbes as a biopesticide, um, you know, I think we're at the very cutting edge of that right now in, in, in evolution of, of technology. Um, so we're doing it uh, with microbes, but there's other companies that are, that are just starting to do it as well. And, you know, I like, to see, I like to see microbes, I like to say that microbes in soil health and, 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 and uh, potentially uh, biopesticides, it's like Internet 1996. You know, the technology is just starting to become, you know, kind of relevant and online, and it's not really clear what we're going to do with it, you know, in the big picture of, of how we grow plants, but it's really clear it's going to be revolutionary and big. And um, so it's really exciting to be at space that microbial space at this technological evolution where it's just getting ready to be disruptive. And, and we're being, you know, with organics, we're leaders in that, in that space. And so I just love being there. Sounds like a really good product, but I want you to answer this question about organics for me. Why do you think I should buy organics? What would uh, motivate me as a customer to buy organics over any other product out there to improve my yield on the farm? I want to scale impact. I want to make the world a better place because I'm doing my profession of entrepreneurship. I want to solve problems by making products cheaper, better, safer, more convenient, somehow adding value to the world in a way nobody's ever done before. I want to revolutionize an industry. And so that really became the, the kind of the thesis behind starting Holganics. You know, we discovered the microbial technology at its infancy. It needed some development, but we could see the potential. Um, and so, so I sold my last company specifically to start Holganics. We had discovered this microbial um, potential. And so I thought if I could sell that company for enough money, I could invest it into building this microbial company. And this microbial company called Holganics could, could really revolutionize the way the world grows. And that's one of our purpose statements is to revolutionize the way the world grows by, by really focusing on soil health and, and functional soil and helping growers have better yield and healthier plants and, and giving you know, giving growers a real ROI in the form of, hey, if, if we have an input cost, it better, it better give you, you know, a return factor of four to 20 times or, you know, or we're not doing our job. And, and microbes can do that, and they can do it in a way that build long-term soil health that don't negatively impact the environment. Um, and so it's, it's, it's exciting stuff, and I think it has a chance to be one of the biggest impacts we can see in agriculture in the next 20 years. Good deal. Well, I got one last question about Holganics. Uh, we've been working together the past few months, and one thing Holganics did was I received a handwritten thank you card a few weeks back from your daughter. That's uh, just something you don't see anymore. In fact, I don't ever think I've actually gotten a handwritten thank you card from anyone in my life. But uh, could you tell us the story behind this and why you do it? Yeah, so it goes back to our core value. You know, uh, core values, one of the primary core values of Holganics is gratitude. And so you know, we ask ourselves, how can we express gratitude every day in what we do? And as I mentioned, we start every staff meeting off with what are you grateful for, personal and business? 
one of the other things we do at the close of every one of our weekly staff meetings is everybody that's involved in the staff meeting is told to uh, take the last 10 minutes and, and just write a thank you card to a uh, vendor, a client, an employee, um, or uh, any relationship that's important to the company, and just let them know how much you appreciate them. Um, you know, it should be authentic. It should be genuine. So we don't want to just make up stuff and, and be, you know, uh, uh, not be real about it. Uh, but but if you sit there and think about it for five minutes, every week there's somebody that's shown up that week that that deserves a thank you. And so we just take a couple minutes and write a thank you card. And I got to tell you, it it goes a long way. I mean, what you're saying to me, uh, I really appreciate. It, and thanks for mentioning it. I'm glad. I'm glad it. It hits you enough to ask me the question. Um, so many times people that I barely even talk to um, will, will go way out of their way for me simply because I wrote them a thank you card two years ago. That's not why we do it. That's, that's, that's a, a byproduct of it. We do it because we want to spread the idea of gratitude. And frankly, just by sitting there thinking about what you're grateful for puts you in a better framework to, be, to, to have a better day and to be a better leader. Um, and, and, you know, if we can let somebody else know what they did for us, we appreciate it. I, I think it makes their day a better day. Um, but it also has a tendency to build relationships long-term. It's just setting up a process and then just doing it. And um, people seem to really appreciate it, and it takes five minutes out of the week. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know the actual story behind it, and uh, I really appreciate Katie taking the time out of her day and sending that to me. But uh, one more thing before we wrap things up. I know you've given our listeners a ton of advice today and life lessons, but... Uh, Let's just touch on one more thing to leave that lasting impression with them. I would love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or a life lesson that uh, has made the most impact on Barrett. Something else that my grandfather used to always tell me. My grandfather was a life insurance salesman and, and took every self-help book and tape that he you know, could get access to, and, uh, and he would give them to me, and he'd pay me to read these books. And if I could recite his favorite quotes, he'd give me a buck every time I'd recite one. My favorite one that I used to recite for him when I was like, 11, 12 years old, and I still, I still probably say it once a week to this day uh, to, to my employees and to my, and to my kids, which is that uh, a wise person learns from his experience, but a super wise person learns from the experience of others. And so, you know, simply how can you leverage the experience of other people to help you, you know, realize your vision and your goals? And, um, boy, that's like a total life hack to me. Because you, you cut out ten, you know, you, you can get something done in a tenth the amount of time that took somebody else that had to figure it out, you know, along the way. And so I'm always trying to surround myself with people that have gone further and done more than I have, and then learn from them how how they done that. And it's been a been an important uh, tool in my life, and and it's been a good good teaching lesson for my kids. Yeah, I uh, totally agree with you on that, Barrett. Uh, I really love learning about organics today, but more importantly, I really loved uh, diving into your life and learning more about you and all the life lessons that you shared with us. So uh, I appreciate being on the show with us today. My pleasure, I, uh, man. Thanks for having me. I think we've really learned a lot from Barrett today, and that's going to conclude our session with Farm Tank. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and also like our page on Facebook. Uh, one more thing I'm going to leave you guys with is a Jeff Bezos quote, work hard, have fun, and make history. Thanks, guys.